the conditions in jail are so difficult to just live through that, you know, me picking up a pen was the only way I could save myself. And I think that pen really did save me because it could have gone either way. I could have picked up the pen and written out my emotions or I could have like picked up something and started fighting people because that's the only way I know how to get the pain out. So for me, the writing literally was formed from the pain and the anger of my imprisonment. Welcome. You're listening to the inaugural series of the Women Beyond Wars podcast. I'm your host, lawyer and activist Sabrina Matani. And on this podcast, I have the privilege of being joined by some incredible individuals, women with lived experience of the justice system, feminist lawyers, activists and experts, all committed to seeing an end to the over-incarceration and over-criminalisation of women worldwide. I'm delighted to have Lady Unchained on the podcast today, joining me from London. Lady Unchained is a poet, performer, award-winning broadcaster, and the founder of Unchained Poetry, an artistic platform for artists with lived experience of the criminal justice system. She uses creativity to challenge stigma around incarceration and to address injustice. Lady Unchained was imprisoned when she was 21 years old and spent 11 months incarcerated and five months with an electronic tag. She has just published a poetry collection, Behind Bars, on punishment, prison and release. It's a powerful but accessible insight into her experience of life inside and beyond prison walls. Lady Unchained, it's such a pleasure to have you on our podcast today, the final podcast of our first series of Women Beyond Walls. And it's very special as your beautiful music is the theme tune to our podcast. So you've actually been with us on each episode. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm honoured. I'm honoured. Thank you for having me. Of course. We're delighted. But not only is your music powerful, so is your story and poetry. In one of your poems, you talk about the 11-year-old you, who sung in Sunday school. The you with the dreams and ambitions that you had to leave behind on the court stand when you were sentenced. Can you tell us a bit more about your childhood and your dreams when you were a child? So, well, do you know what? So it's so interesting um, because I think sometimes, like or most of the times when people say, oh, I was in jail and their childhood, they always expect their childhood to be like completely crazy. And I, I wouldn't say my childhood was perfect, but... I don't remember like ever being taken like in a place where I felt uncomfortable. Like my mum, we know we had food, we had everything we needed in the house. I remember my mum getting to the point where she didn't want us to scream for the ice cream van no more. So she went, got the whole, like nearly every flavour of the ice cream that you can possibly get and the cones. So we can make our own ice cream because she needed to save money, you know, and you would still be upset in them times because you want the ice cream like every other child that has it. But, you know, if we got it, we got it. And so I feel like my childhood growing up, I had most things that I needed, if not more. (laughs) Um, I remember getting pocket money and always being the one that would save and then having to borrow, lend out my money to my older siblings because they would have spent all their money, you know. So I was kind of that. I feel like I had a good childhood. I had like, you know, amazing friends that some of them are still in my life right now. You know, my best friends are still in my life. Two of them 
um, unfortunately passed away after I come out of prison. And that's something that I hold on to because I realized that had I not been in prison, I would have had more memories to make with these two young men who I actually dedicated my book to in my acknowledgements. Of course, when I got older, there's so many other things that happen. You're, you know, you're growing into a woman, you know, like there's things that are changing in your life. And I think even those times, yes, there were some things that I think made me somewhat a little bit different. So I used to go to church a lot and that kept me grounded. That kept me really grounded. Um, and I would, um, I remember being quite, getting very bored during the service, not because I didn't want to hear the message. It was because it took so long to get to the message. Um, and that's how I felt as a child. I felt like, you know, there was just something happening here that I needed to know, but I don't want to sit and wait for it. And I remember actually thinking, if I'm bored, and this is probably about me being 11, if I'm bored and I'm looking around and the kids are like eight, nine, seven, they must be bored out of their minds because I could just about understand. So I did offer myself to the pastor because I was in a choir and I said, look, I, I want to be in service, but, you know, I enjoy mostly the singing and the service at the end. But, you know, there's kids that are bored and they're being told off because they're kind of fidgety, you know. And I said, oh, well, how about if I take them to the other room in another space, take them away from all the adults and I could be like a Sunday school teacher? And they went, oh, OK, like, what would you do? I said, well, I can write some Sunday school songs for them and we can, you know, so I did should have known that there was some kind of element to me being able to write and, you know, be creative in that way. But at the time I was just seeing it as like, this is amazing. I'm getting, I'm writing these words on a paper and these kids are going into the service and singing it for the adults. And it was just, you know, those moments that you just kind of cherish a lot. Um, and you look back at when you get older, like, oh my God, like I, I did that. But those are the kind of like childhood memories that I have of, you know, little messages that were clearly trying to tell me that one day I was going to get to this place, but how I got there was a completely different um, emotional, stressful, near enough breaking. And I would not even near enough, definitely breaking. I, I broke, like prison broke me. And it, it broke me in a way that with the faith that I had and the joy and the happiness that I had as a child and, you know, always being known for the smiling person and the one that was helpful it broke me to become somebody so different that I've only now today, you know, in the last few years found again, like, you know, I've, I've finally found that little girl. I've, I've found her, the one that was singing in the choir, the one that was had a lot of faith and the one that believed in a better world. I finally found her now because if I hadn't, I don't think I'd be doing what I was doing today. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And yeah, you know, you can see already from your childhood, as you explain it, all of the kind of creativity and the gifting you had and sort of your leadership abilities. And as you said, it's so great that you've been able to kind of rebuild that again after your experience. And in the first page of your book, you write, Dear Justice System, Stop Failing My People. Can you share what led to your arrest and your experience of the justice system? So I got arrested for fighting. Um, I was in a nightclub with my older sister and she was attacked by three women. I beat up one of the three women and I remember just being told, you know, to run away because the police was coming. But I didn't think I should run because, you know, the way I saw it was guilty people run away, you know, guilty people run. And I didn't think I was guilty. The way I saw that incident was that 
it was self-defense and I, I was very, you know, no, I'm going to talk to the police and I will explain what happened. So of course the police came and arrested me. And I mean, I wouldn't say that the police that arrested me were rude to me at all. If anything, I had very good conversations with them. I know it, sometimes there's not great police officers, but these ones were quite understanding and quite, you know, listening. I was on bail for a while. Um, I think I say eight to 11, 11 months. Or like it was, it just, do you know what? It feels like bail, bail feels like a very long time, especially when you don't know what's going to happen. And I think people need to understand that when you're on bail, when you're being sentenced, when you're going through the justice system, the initial arrest is like the shock. Like if you've never been arrested before, it's like, oh my God, I've been arrested and I've been bailed. When you're on bail, so many things happen to you in that time. You know, like I felt like while I was on bail, I was losing a piece of me. Every single time I had to appear in court, every single time I had to listen to a solicitor telling me that what the possibilities could be, you know, all the while also trying to avoid these women that had attacked us, you know, while I was on bail. So there's a whole process that happens before, during, after, like, you know, there's a whole process. So I then got convicted on the 9th of February, 2009. I was convicted to two and a half years. And honestly, I don't think that I had looked at the justice system in a way that, oh, it might treat me differently because I'm a woman, or it might treat me differently or be because I'm a black woman, or it might treat me differently because I'm a black woman that was born in a different country. You know, I never once ever for anything of that when I was going into the system. It was more so when I got there. Lady Unchained was detained in three prisons. First in Holloway, which is in London, then Morton Hall in Lincolnshire, a prison for foreign nationals, and finally in Downview, which is in Surrey. Despite being a British national, she was transferred to a prison for foreign nationals, where she says her Ugandan heritage was weaponized against her. She was threatened with deportation, even though immigration had cleared her, and she was only able to fight back against this through a hunger strike. She unpacked for me the racism she experienced throughout the system. You know, and now I'm in the system and kind of experience things that only somebody in the system can experience. I do recall my first kind of initial days in Holloway and this uh, white lady actually said to me, you know, she found out what I was in jail for and, you know, told her my sister was attacked and actually I was explaining to her and she kind of laughed. And, I, you know, I don't want to have an argument with nobody, but I was like so confused. I thought like, why is she laughing at me? And she went, I'm so sorry. You probably think I'm laughing at you, right? She said, no, 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 I'm not laughing at you. I'm just laughing at like the justice system's messed up then, isn't it? And I was like, why'd you say that? And she said, I've done that like three times. And I remember looking and thinking, are you telling me the system's racist or what? You know, and again, you know, being brought up a certain way, again, it's like you don't want to believe it. You don't want to believe that the system is is going to treat you differently because you're, you're a different colour, you know, because I've done history. They told me slavery and all of that stuff has ended, you know. So what did you teach me in school if this stuff is still really existing? But behind closed doors, behind the wall that nobody other than anybody that lives behind it or works in it can see the real stories and the real kind of abuse that is happening to people like me. So I would say that was when I kind of started to realise how things are different for black people, for black women, 
but also not only just those kind of small experiences, just the journey into my prison sentence and, you know, being transferred to met to different jails and eventually being transferred to a prison where it's a foreign national jail and you, you know, then was threatened with deportation, you know, so that is a whole different part of the, like the British justice system, because people don't, you know, I probably wouldn't believe anybody if they had said that to me, but I was in a foreign national jail where, because I made so much noise about the fact that I wasn't supposed to be there, the fact that, you know, I was British and I still deserved the British, you know, the, the same privileges that British inmates get, I was threatened with deportation and fully had to, you know, go on hunger strike, you know, just to, to reduce my anger. Because again, when you're thrown into a box and you're being told you're African, you're, you're foreign, you're this, you know, being angry verbally and physically only shows them, oh yeah, look, it's because you're different. That's why you, you sound like that. Because of course, you've got to remember that people see black as danger. And so I chose not to speak because I, I realized that every time I spoke to these particular officers, it would get me into more trouble. And so hunger strike was the only way I could fight without physically having to say the wrong thing to this officer or actually feel like I have to fight for my actual freedom to get out. So yeah, I think the prison system, when you look at it, it says, oh, you know, you go to jail and that's it and you come out. Thank you so much for raising the systemic racism in the justice system. And you do this really powerfully through your work. And I think it's so important because we need more voices like yours trying to challenge this and to kind of unpack this. I remember reading, I think it was Ministry of Justice in 2016, statistics that showed that black women and women from mixed ethnic backgrounds were twice as likely to be arrested in comparison to white women, which, you know, is is just shocking. And I think that your work is so important because as well as this important research and evidence, we need the personal stories and we need the personal impact of what the systemic racism is doing to people. Exactly, exactly. And half of the time, I guess I would say I'm lucky that I made it out there. I'm lucky that I made it out and I'm here to tell the story. And that's why I have to tell it because I have friends who I met in those foreign national jails and most of them either got deported or just gave up. They couldn't fight, you know, and I, I still talk to them. They're in different countries and they tell me, you know, thank you for bringing that up because they haven't been able to get over it, but they can't talk about it because again, especially in other countries as well, being as a woman, being in jail, you're looked at a lot different, you know, you know, it's just as a woman, you're just looked at differently anyway. But these are people that have now been deported. And I remember actually saying that to the officer, I said, look, I think that you believe that you're going to deport me, but I'm not going anywhere. And I am going to stay in this country. And when I get the chance to, I will tell this story until people listen. And they laughed at me, you know, they laughed because possibly they had been doing this for so many years and people just get deported and disappear and the story never gets told and if it is told it's told through somebody who might have overheard it and just kind of share a story just because they're shot and that's the end of that story but now I'm here and I, I'm here and I'm talking about it and so the story can't end until we at least start to see some kind of change from the system that is actually like oppressing people's mental health people's voices people's uh, freedom it's doing so much to people that most of the time have already been let down by something or someone research by the griffin society in 2022 shows that foreign national women are more likely to be remanded in custody 
while awaiting trial or sentencing than British women, and often for less serious offences. The report found that foreign national women are also harmed by measures introduced to cut costs within the criminal justice system. Cuts to legal aid, the privatisation of translation services, and the use of remote hearings marginalise a group already at significant disadvantage. This is especially concerning as many foreign national women are at greater risk of being a victim of human trafficking or modern slavery. Lady Unchained explained how, as she could speak English, she became a source of support to these women when they were asked to sign deportation papers. I became the go-to person because everyone that came in didn't believe what was happening until they eventually started receiving letters saying, sign this to go back, sign this to go back. And soon after, eventually everybody would come to me, you know, people that couldn't understand English. I would have to explain to them, if you sign this, they're saying they're going to send you back. And then, you know, you had women crying, saying they can't go back to this place. And I'm telling them, I don't know what to tell you. All I can say is don't sign. You know, so that is my experience of being in a foreign national jail and a jail that a lot of people don't know that prisons like that exist here. They don't know that women are treated like this in prison. And a lot of people will say, well, actually, you're a criminal and you deserve that. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of women that actually don't deserve to be in prison. There's a lot of women that have been abused so many for so many years that abuse just became a normality to them. It became a normality. So when the prison system starts to abuse them, it's nothing new to them. It's a way of this is just what happens in my life. I am that person that people walk all over and nothing is going to change. You know, and if you put someone like that in prison, what do you expect them to do? They're going to eventually just become the system. They are going to live by the system because guess what? You've never shown them that anything that has happened to them would receive justice. You've never shown them what justice is. To them, justice is them being punished. It's so important that you highlight how not all prisons are the same. You know, often we think, okay, you're just going to get this like one type of treatment. But as you said, like actually depends on what prison you're in. Exactly, exactly. I think it's very important to say to know that because I didn't know that. I, I didn't know all of these things. I didn't know that the difference of class and stuff in jails. I didn't, I didn't understand that. But every person's experience is going to be different. But also it's up to the jail to make sure that the, that the people are treated equally and are treated fairly. But unfortunately, if people can't complain and people can't make noise, without getting, you know, as an inmate, you're not allowed to say, oh, you're treating me bad. You're not allowed to say that because who are you saying it to? You know, maybe somebody else might have a better opportunity to do that once they're out. But as an inmate, these voices, our voices are not heard. Absolutely. And that's why people like yourself who have this lived experience and who are also creating a platform for others with lived experience, you know, it's just so, so vital. So after you were released from prison, you spent five months under electronic monitoring. And just like with prison systems, these forms of alternatives to prison were designed for men. And they have been criticised as not taking into account the particular needs that women face. There's also concern about net widening, meaning that these systems can unnecessarily increase the number of people under control of the criminal justice system. Can you share more about your experience under electronic monitoring? Well, like, honestly, it was a very weird moment, actually. I can't explain it. I think when I was in jail and I, I was hoping I get it, 
I was like, you know, I'm if I get it, you know, if it's going to be summer, I'm going to be outside. I don't care. I'm going to put some diamantes <laughs> on it. You know, I'm going outside. But the reality of it was that when I got out, I was so embarrassed to have even been to jail. And so showing the tag would be proving that I'd been to jail. And so I hid it a lot. I remember wearing boots for the longest time, even when it was warm, I'm wearing boots. And everyone's like, are you not hot? And I'm like, why are you watching my style? It's my style, man. Like, you know, it's my style, but I, I didn't want to wear that. Um, and I remember the first couple of weeks, I didn't leave the house. I was so scared. I was so scared to go back to jail that I just didn't leave the house. And I remember, I think two weeks later, they called me and said to me, we can't pick you up on the, on the monitor. And I said, I promise you, I haven't left the house. And they said, yeah, see, that's probably the problem. You haven't left the house. So I said, yeah, but that's good, isn't it? I'm on, I'm on home, home detention. I'm on curfew. Like, I, I don't need to go anywhere. And she was like, well, if you don't go outside, we can't pick you up. So really, the, the last two weeks, we haven't been able to mo monitor you. I was like, what? Like, so they had to come to the flat, play around with it, change it, and then do the whole walking around. You know, you come, they come to the house, you walk around your whole house, you have to put your leg in the in the bath or where you shower so that they know that once you're in there that's still a part of the house you know so they do all the checks and that and then eventually they started picking me up again but being on tag honestly for me a lot of people don't like it because it's like you're still in jail um but for me prison mentally was so much that just having that moment of being in your house not having someone open your door when you least suspect it not having the screams and, you know, that's adding to the screams that's already in your head. You know, it was for me was a, a lot, I, I would say a lot smoother than it was um, maneuvering through pris the prison system. You have a section in your book on life after prison. And you mentioned that when you leave prison, you're not returning to the life you had before. You're returning to a whole different life and it's hard. What were some of the challenges that you faced after you released from prison? The fact that I had a conviction and I was now an ex-offender, um, it took me a long time to admit that in the job centre. I would apply for jobs and, you know, you have to declare it. And I had I had done prep for work before I left prison. So I had my cover letter, my um, disclosure letter. I had that already. So I would, when I would apply for jobs, I knew that I would always send the cover letter and disclosure letter to HR separately. And I, obviously I'll never hear back. And I remember the lady in the job center saying, it seems like you've got loads of experience, but you know, what's going on? Are you actually applying for these jobs? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. And it wasn't until a few months that I eventually kind of broke down. And I said, look, I am applying for these jobs, but the truth is I've got a criminal conviction, you know, and they were shocked, you know, they were shocked because they were like, what, like what happened? And I tried to explain it to them and, they actually didn't know how to support me um, at that time. There wasn't a lot of job seekers, advisors that actually knew how to deal with people coming out of prison. And that's another issue. You know, you're being told one thing and then getting sent somewhere else. And, you know, again, you're trying to learn how to be in the system with a new identity, with a new label, you know. So it did take me a long time. Of course, luckily I had this flat, but you know, things that were happening during that, you know, issues, housing issues and trying to get back date payments because I was in arrears. And, you know, there's all these things that before Joe, I didn't owe anybody money. I'd never owed anyone money. Like, you know, like I didn't know what arrears were. Arrears, you know, the council had to explain what arrears meant to me. You know, I was like, I don't, like, I didn't know what it was, you know. So now you're trying to rebuild your life with, with debt. 
um, that you didn't even realize was going to happen. Um, but also without a job. <laughs> now you've got debt, you've got no job. And, you know, people need to understand that once you're in the system, but e it's so easy for you to, you can't just be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You can't just, you know, like, you know, anybody can be in the, big, the wrong place at the wrong time and just be a witness to something. I would be a suspect, you know? <laughs> so being able to come out of jail and you're, they tell you you're free, but really outside, you're, you've got a new label, a new label that can get you arrested straight away because you've been to jail, get you arrested because you're suspected to be someone that could have possibly, until proven innocent, they'll just arrest you, you know? So maneuvering and getting back on your feet, like, I think it's the hardest thing to do. And this is why people end up going back. Lady Unchained's experience shows so powerfully that being released from prison is not the end of the story. Often women face many more struggles and many more barriers, particularly racially minoritized women. A report by the charity Working Chance highlights how racism in the criminal justice system harms women's chances of finding work after prison. Lady Unchained then went on to tell me the important role a good probation officer can play but as with many issues in the criminal justice system, she believes who ends up supporting you is a lottery rather than a guarantee. I was lucky to have good probation officers and, you know, one even had, had come to one of my nights, Unchained Nights, you know. Um, but again, I was lucky. I was I was lucky and I, I, was, I was very open. And I think because of the simple fact that I always wanted to do better, like, I was just very honest and there's probably one in a dozen like there's one in probably one in every probation office that is like trying really hard to just do their job but they're limited also by the structure of how they're meant to work you know so it's it's being we're stuck in a system as people that need their help but they're stuck in a system that they know we need their help but they're also stuck in a system where they can't provide the information or the support that they need to give because of the structures that have been put into place of how you are meant to, I guess, support somebody after prison. That's really a lottery and it's so hard to navigate all of that. Yeah. And you said you were always like trying to kind of change or do something different. What led you to start writing poetry in prison and how did creative practice or how has creative practice helped you when you were inside prison and beyond? Writing in prison came along because of the fear of getting into more trouble and the the fact that there was no outlet for my emotional state of mind, there was no outlet. Um, and I didn't want to look weak. I didn't want to look soft. I didn't want people to think, oh God, like that's the girl that's always crying every day, you know? So, and also officers that were being rude or racist or whatever, like it was just easier to write things out than to say it out loud. Um, and when I did write, it was, it was basically more like Dear Diary. It wasn't even... There weren't no like poetic flow or anything um, to it. It was just me, you know, randomly writing about the girl who wants to beat me up because I didn't borrow her my earrings or the officer that told me, I think this is a hotel. You know, it's just these, these little things that having said something to that particular officer about the hotel situation, I was automatically told I was going to get written up and I didn't even know what written up meant. Like, you know, so it was a way <laughs> to kind of really deal with the the stress and the, the emotions that people go through within this prison system but don't have it anywhere to to let it out like here you could go to the gym and yes you can have a phone call with your mum here and there if the phone is free 
you know, then also saying that, thinking about COVID times and how, you know, how many hours they were out once and once a day and f- trying to figure out if you should have a shower or call your mum or your wife or your child, you know, the prison, the conditions in jail are so difficult to, to, to just live through that, you know, me picking up a pen was the only way I could save myself. And I think that pen really did save me um, because it could have gone either way. I could have picked up the pen and written out my emotions or I could have like picked up something and started fighting people because that's the only way I know how to get the pain out. So for me, the writing literally was formed from the, the, the pain and the anger of my imprisonment. And I think I only started really sharing it when I got out. <laughs> Even then I was still like, I'm not a poet. I'm not a poet. I just write down stuff in the diary. Don't read it. It's very personal. Um, but it was again, like I did share one poem just before I was released. And that that's also in the book, which I've now edited down to be in the book. Cause I thought, you know, that's the first poem I put together. And the way I put it together was again, those notes. It's kind of how I did like, you know, it makes sense for me to say this now because that is how I write now. You know, I don't, I don't always write full poems straight out of the, of the, like the blue, like it, I, I kind of write bits and then put bits together. And another thing that always happens is I, I write backwards. So even if I say I'm writing a poem from the beginning to end, I would always have the end of the poem would always be the beginning of the poem. And it always works out somehow that way when I write, but this particular one I performed in jail and I just picked out little parts of bits of my day and put it together and formed a, a poem, which is in a book. I think it, it, it's um, a thin line between good and bad, something like that. So it's just that kind of following the journey of like how once upon a time I used to think I was a good girl and, you know, anybody you could ask would be like, oh yeah, no, she's a good girl. She's lovely, that one. Um, to then the girl that they should contain, a girl that is like a violent one, the girl that is you should look out for, you know, all of that stuff, like having to put that together in one poem and just kind of really showing not really anybody else, but myself that it, it really does take one thing to make somebody go from the good girl to the bad girl. Or another way that I'll put it is that it really, everybody's basically one step away from a prison sentence. It's just either you're not going to get convicted or you're going to get convicted, but you're one step away from a prison sentence. And it depends on your color, your race, your sex, like that depends, all depends on that, you know, your class, your status, you know, all of that works in your favor, depending or, or, or doesn't, but we are all one step away from a prison sentence. And that's just the honest truth. Absolutely. And you know, people have so many stereotypes about people in prison. And if you watch popular culture, you know, it's really stereotyped. And I think what I love, especially about your poems and about your platform is, is people will be like, oh yeah, you know, Lady Unchained, she's just like me. She's just like my friend next door. And yeah, I, I don't imagine her as someone who could have been in prison. And as you say, but you know, any of us, any of us could be in prison. It is just a lot of luck or or bad luck or particularly you know circumstances like yeah research shows that many women particularly who end up in prison you know have suffered from abuse or poverty or marginalization so I, it's there's so many women in jail and I think that's another shocker for me when I got there I was like wow there is actually loads of women in prison you know I thought it's probably going to be like a little boot camp or something you know like for women just somewhere but you know, it is, there's lots of mothers, grandmothers, daughters, like, you know, wives, <laughs> sisters, everybody's there. And, you know, most of them, when you look at it, you know, when I first got there, I, I thought everyone was different or, 
you know, they must be more bad than me. But, you know, the longer you stay in there and you realize that the mothers do tend to become mothers in there, they do tend to be more motherly and caring for the young ones and the young ones are looked after. <laughs> you know, there is a community of women really supporting each other because if you think some of those mothers, they have their own kids and some of us are probably the age their kids are and, you know, we're now we're in jail. So it kind of automatically happens that you become mothered by somebody else and you kind of take comfort in uh, somebody that is showing you care because you can't just pick up the phone and call your own mum, you know, or your own daughter. So yeah, that prison is a place where a lot of women are have already been suffering, but are just sent to suffer just that little bit more because apparently they think that that's what's going to completely fix them. And your story shows so powerfully how harmful prison is and particularly how harmful prison is for women. And in 2021, the government announced that it plans to build 500 new prison places for women, despite a previous commitment to reduce the number of women in prison and invest in community-based services that support women and prevent women you know, being criminalised in the first place. What do you think needs to change about the way the UK treats women in contact with the criminal justice system? I would say the government needs to invest in more community stuff, like more community support, you know, for somebody that has been to jail, it was interesting for me to find out about women's centres and what these places are. I never knew what a women's centre is. Like, you know, and I, I started to question why had I never been told about this? Why was I not directed somewhere like this so that I can go and meet other women and talk to somebody, you know, in a separate place instead of having to go to probation as a woman that is mostly full of men, you know? And again, if you're not strong-minded, so many other things can happen during your just going to a probation, you know, appointment. So I would say invest in more community stuff, especially invest in the women's centers because the women's centers, like finding out that there is a space just for women, right? Some women are probably going to jail and that's the first time they've been around so many women, right? In this place, there's so many women there. They've been through different, you know, some coming from DV, domestic violence, relationships. Some have been through the criminal justice system, but it's a safe place. You know, I lead poetry workshops in these centers and I, I've met the most amazing women that have gone from I'm not a writer or a performer to performing on a stage to about 150 people you know there is so much things happening in women's centers that can really help a woman in a way that a prison sentence cannot help. You mentioned earlier that you were first imprisoned in Holloway prison and this was Western Europe's largest women's prison which was finally closed in 2015 and organisations are campaigning for the former prison to be turned into a space that provides community support services to women. What do you think should happen to this former place of punishment? And how do you feel about these conversations that are going on about, you know, what should happen to Holloway, this place that you were once detained in? So I returned to Holloway a few times now to do two different documentaries, my own and uh, another one I was in for a different, uh, a different production. I've had this conversation, I've heard conversations and honestly, again, it would be to invest women's centres there, like to have a big old centre there where, where hopefully women could actually like, you know, live as well. Like it makes up, it's that such a big space. Um, I don't know what's gone on, but I've heard so many stuff about them building a small women's centre there, but compared to the space, I feel a small women's centre is like, is kind of like a kick in the face because the space is so big, it was looked after by the women. You know, I've gone back and you can see 
the gardens, how how much they've grown out and how terrible they looked. And I remember being in Halloween that those gardens were looked after by those women. You know, if they created a garden where these women, these same women that used to help garden and look after that building could come and have like a little bit of land that they can help look after, that just gives someone something to do. You know, I mean, I wish I could say I've been in a conversation and they're going to build this, you know, massive um space and they're going to have people like myself going and do workshops. And I think that would be amazing to have women like myself go in, you know, access, have access to women, make it a walk-in, make it that, you know, somebody that probably has been in a hole for God knows how long and doesn't even realize that Holloway's gone, staggering up to the gates thinking, oh, they're going to lock me up here. And they find actually, hello, hi, welcome. This is not Holloway. It is, is a safe, it's a safe space. You know, I, I think that that would be amazing. And I could only dream for that. But for me, the way I see it, I think it's going to be people like us, people that are doing the work that are, are going to create these spaces. And I'm not sure if Holloway, the place that nearly killed a lot of people and, and had people take their own lives and had people die in there. I don't know if it is going to be given back to the women that really should have the space. Yeah, thank you, uh, Lady Unchained. And we will be sharing on the website and podcast links, sort of, you know, links to the campaign to reclaim Holloway uh, in case listeners do want to support. And, and you know, I actually live part-time in Holloway and used to, when I was a lawyer, kind of sometimes walk past and kind of visit, you know, women I was supporting there. So yeah, this is like a very personal kind of cause for me as well. But I agree with you, I think as well, like, you know, there's lots of amazing and incredible women like yourself who are creating those spaces as well um, in other ways. And so that also needs to be um, invested in. And I would just be so honoured if you would read your poem, Returning to Holloway, which all of the poems in your book are so powerful, but this one really, really touched me. So we'd be really honoured if you'd read it for us. So this poem, like, it's crazy because... I wrote this after I went back in to do the Holloway documentary because obviously I, when I was in Holloway, it was a prison, you know, so you don't leave and Holloway is a very like high, you know, it was a high security. So you don't move until the officers like, you know, doing that. But when I went back, it was an empty space, you know, and everything is empty. It's just, there's no women and, you know, I'm walking through gates and it was just a different experience. So this is where this poem uh, came from, returning to Holloway. I walk back into this prison freely. This building that once nearly killed me made me forget my name, my identity, my worth. This is the place that was meant to fix me, but only highlighted my issues and gave me no outlet to release them. Instead, they were trapped inside with me, eaten away at my insides while I tried to disguise my hunger to seem strong. I should feel different this time. But this place brings back pain I thought had healed and tears I thought were all cried out. They return to the surface like they never left. Have I not healed? Some things have changed. The walls feel smaller. Its foundation is weaker. I walk through gates I once had to wait for an officer to unlock. I have become a tour guide for others seeking to understand and find meaning in this nightmare women like me had to live through. I feel the spirits of those whose stories remain trapped in the cracks. They speak to me through the strips of paint falling off the walls, the rusting of metal beds. They remind me 
My story is not the first and won't be the last. I feel them as I walk. I feel them as I take each step forward through dead silence. The cold air is like their last breath of life used to help me walk through these halls for the last time. They are the light that shines within me. I suddenly realize I have never walked these halls alone. I have always walked with these women. I was just too trapped, too broken to see. Any of these women could be me. They could be you, the women of Holloway, the women hidden behind bars, never to be seen or heard. I am the voice of the forgotten women. Hear us now. Thank you so much, Lady Unchained. I have goosebumps on my arms from you reading that poem. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lady Unchained, for sharing with us your important insights and your incredible gift of creativity. We'll make sure to share links to your book and platforms on our website. And how can listeners further support your work? Uh, well, of course, just buy the book, please. Um, of course. But if anyone that is working in prisons, like, you know, um, in the library, please try and get it into the people inside the prison walls because I think it's very important for them to have that. Um, but also follow me on Twitter. at um, So it's... Um, <laughs> Unchained Poetry on Twitter and Lady Unchained on Instagram. And, you know, of course, when I have events, try and support and come and watch me perform live. And, you know, let's get to know each other. Honestly, I think for me, I'm all about community and collaboration. So if anybody's interested in doing something soon with us, I'll be more than happy to have a conversation about it. So, yeah, just keep supporting. And you know what? Give somebody a chance. If you I've listened today and thought, you know what? I've got a family member that I actually didn't understand what they were going through at the time. Maybe they give them a call say, I listen to that lady on chain lady let's have a conversation <laughs> Stand up. we've got to Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Beyond Walls. To find out more about Lady Unchained, her poetry and her work, please visit our website at womenbeyondwalls.org. You'll also find information about how you can support organisations working with and for incarcerated women and girls and the campaign to reclaim Holloway Prison. This episode is edited by Human Group Media, a podcast company for social change and impact. To learn more about their work, please visit humangroupmedia.com. On this episode, we are thankful for the assistance of Laura Cook as producer, Victoria Lynn as communications fellow, Callista Jaisaria for research support, and to Lady Unchained and Miri for the use of their song, which accompanies all podcast episodes in the series. If you love the song as much as we do, visit Unchained Poetry's website, a platform for artists with experience of the criminal justice system. If you enjoyed this episode of Women Beyond Walls, we encourage you to pass it on and share with friends. And if you have time, we would really appreciate your reviews on your podcast platform. 